0: Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to begin with a, a few words from Acts chapter 4 to help focus our thoughts for this morning. In Acts chapter 4, verses beginning at verse 29, it says, <clears throat> it's part of a prayer, it's a continuation of a prayer. It says, and now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Bold and beautiful. I think we need to begin with a bit of context. The book of Acts provides an historical perspective on the earliest days of the Christian church. It's the most complete account we have of how the first Christ followers were inspired to develop what has become a religion that is now claimed by one-third of the human inhabitants of this planet, billions of people. Christianity began as a reform movement within the Judaism of first-century Jerusalem. It started out small, but after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it attracted a lot of keen converts, and it wasn't long before the religious establishment began to feel threatened by the disruptive effects of the great enthusiasm that characterized the first believers. The Holy Spirit had been powerful in their midst. Peter and John were healing the sick and performing miracles. And they were preaching with a boldness and a clarity that baffled the religious elite. How could these uneducated country folk be so confident, articulate, and persuasive? Who gave them the authority, not to mention the competence, to work medical wonders, and to proclaim such troublesome beliefs. The message that Jesus had risen from the dead was anathema to certain of the religious leaders, and the fact that these country bumpkins were demanding them to repent and reform was most unwelcome. When the hubbub among the populace became too great to ignore, Peter and John were hauled before the religious authorities and severely chastised. But because they were popular with the masses and because they hadn't actually done anything wrong, they were released, albeit with stern warnings to cease and desist. They took the admonitions seriously, but not because they were intimidated. We must obey God rather than man, became their mantra. And the first thing that they did after their release was to gather the community of Jesus' followers in order to spend time praying together. It's a pattern all throughout the book of Acts. When people get into trouble, they get together to pray to God for the particular situation. One of the main things that they chose to pray about at this time was for courage. And let me read that passage again. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants your word to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Boldness. Things actually went quite well for this little Christian community in the aftermath of of, of that being hauled before the authorities, at least for a little while. The Christians were living together in blissful harmony. They were sharing what they had, and they were encouraging one another, and multitudes, it says, were being added to their number. And even many of those who couldn't quite buy into their baffling Jesus-raised-from-the-dead belief held the Christians in high esteem. These were good people. They weren't causing trouble. But soon enough, however, disconcerting things started to happen, and harsh testing times advanced upon them. And now I'm not quite sure what kind of pressures any of you encounter as a threat to your religious convictions, if you have any. We've got it pretty easy in Canada. We are free to believe and worship pretty much as we like. We are not threatened with harsh forms of persecution that believers elsewhere in the world must contend with. Yet... Living as a Jesus follower in a free and open society isn't always easy either. Overt hostility is not unheard of, but uh, uh, spiritual indifference is much more likely to ensnare us. Ease and affluence make us content to simply drift along and fit in. We don't ruffle feathers. We don't have much call for boldness. Some years ago, I attended a conference on the other side of the world where I had the opportunity to meet with a veteran Christian leader who lived in a country where Christianity was unwelcome and expressing it publicly was mostly illegal. He was a missionary in a region where believers are oppressed and Christian worship severely restricted. Nonetheless, he and his team found opportunities to speak and to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ to people, uh, many of whom considered Christians the enemy. Um, It didn't all go well for them. Some team members had been jailed, tortured, interrogated, and the threat of persecution was a constant uh, presence to them, and yet they persisted. And I found it especially interesting when this leader told me that the threats and the personal risks were not the biggest problem he faced in conducting Christian ministry under adverse conditions. That kind of adversity, he said, actually had a way of galvanizing the team and nurturing a sense of divine vocation. In his group's experience, God showed up most tangibly when their human inadequacy was most evident. Especially in the hard places, God rewarded their faith with deep encouragement. encouragement. In the suffering is where they found their spirits strengthened. But this clarity of calling could easily be lost when the pressure wasn't on. And then he made what seemed to me to be a startling admission He said, I fear the raised eyebrow more than I fear the raised fist. Say what? I fear the raised eyebrow more than I fear the raised fist. I had to think about that. The prisoners in the torture chamber experienced the presence of the Spirit of God in the midst of their suffering But the same team members felt no such confidence when they sat to to sip coffee on the hotel patio with with members of the cultural elite. I fear the raised eyebrow more than I fear the raised fist. Why is it so hard to speak comfortably about God in simple conversations uh, with people? especially if they seem indifferent to religious concerns. Why does the desire to be accepted or respected suppress our confidence in the simple power of the gospel? Why is our spiritual edge so dulled in the absence of confrontation and when comforts abound? The Christian leader I'm quoting worked in an area of the world governed by grave religious constraints. Yet the heart of his concerns does speak to our Canadian condition where secular society is kind of sidling faith to the periphery. Because religion has a way of disrupting polite society, we readily suppress our evangelistic mandate. To be on the skewered end of the ironic eyebrow shuts us up more effectively than active hostility. The Apostle Paul suffered similar feelings of inadequacy. Strange to consider. Paul's words in Scripture include a lot of prayers. In his writings, he frequently calls on God to respond to the concerns of Christian believers, asking for many, many things and much grace on their behalf, and yet only rarely I believe it's on six occasions, does Paul request prayer for himself. And when he does, the dominant theme in more than half the times when he prays for himself, the dominant theme is that he would be bold and clear with the gospel of Christ. And that struck me as strange. Paul. Paul was not one to shirk. We're really talking about the Apostle who seemed to court confrontation with Christians, Jews, and Gentiles alike. This is the author who contributed a third of the New Testament, who articulated the foundations of Christian doctrine, and we're referring to the man who took the gospel message by ship and on foot on several missionary journeys throughout the Roman world where he was imprisoned and ultimately executed for communicating a bold and a clear gospel. This guy needs prayer for boldness. I guess we're going to have to consider the possibility that forthrightness didn't always come readily to Paul. He may not have particularly liked confrontation. He doubtless had moments of doubt about the reckless wisdom that propelled him. Perhaps the Macedonian call seemed like a vague dream the morning after. Paul certainly knew his own weaknesses, which are matters that we can only speculate about. But we can acknowledge that the characteristics for which he is most remembered, that boldness and that clarity, those characteristics reflect the substance of the prayers that he requested on his own behalf and no doubt the experience of God's presence in the midst of adversities, the flogging, the prison, the stoning, the shipwreck, the squabbles with colleagues, all of it. The experience of God's presence in the midst of this encouraged his faith, affirmed his calling and strengthened his resolve. Hostile circumstances helped to galvanize the early Christian church. Now, many of us in the West are all too content to be people pleasers. We shy away from the dreaded prospect of being on the receiving end of disdainful glances from colleagues, friends, neighbors. We are not bold with the gospel, and neither are we clear. As Paul modeled, this this may be a good thing for us to be praying for. But I want to be clear about something else. Requesting boldness and clarity in advancing the gospel does not mean becoming belligerent, unduly aggressive, or unloving in any way. Being bold does not mean be a jerk. Christian boldness should be beautiful. It should reflect the love of Jesus Christ. It should envision the image of God in every person it engages. It should be a reflection of a life in communion with God, the outflow of an abiding confidence that Jesus Christ really is good news for all people, not necessarily just for those who believe and behave according to my understanding of doctrine and propriety. We've got to love them all. Beautiful boldness means courageously addressing my own issues and the problems in my sphere, not just the shortcomings of those who might be my enemies or of those who array themselves against me uh, and what I believe, or for those who spark fear in my heart. Boldness is not necessary when fear is absent. So let's talk for a minute about fear fear. Most of us, I dare say every one of us, has some familiarity with the uncomfortable inner churning that reveals our own sense of inadequacy. We fear pain. We fear failure. We're afraid people won't like us or respect us. We don't want to be embarrassed or ashamed. We do not want our reputations to suffer or our relationships to be strained, and we may be well aware that our petty embarrassments uh, and fears are not in the same league as those who face death or conflict or torture or deportation or ostracism or any of a million great hurts that are not features of our reality, and yet our fears are real nonetheless, and they matter. Fear is part and parcel of the human condition that we taste in a wide variety of flavors. At one end of the spectrum, we experience feelings of caution, hints of worry or mild stress. And at the other end our full-blown panic, terror, and horror. And in between is a vast array of anxieties, frights, and dreads. These are not pleasant emotions, but each of us must learn to face them with fortitude and grace. The dark emotions can be our best teachers, and mere escape is rarely a good plan. So even though fear's effects can be debilitating, we need to realize that we can't live without fear. Fear is a lot like cholesterol. There are good types and bad types. Cholesterol is absolutely essential to physical well-being, but the wrong amount and the wrong type is harmful to our bodies. And so it is with fear. Good fear is a survival instinct, instinct that warns of real and present danger, a quickening impulse that prompts beneficial action. Bad fear is to quail from dangers both real and imagined to dwell in the paralysis of anxiety. Stress is a low-grade form a form of low-grade fear that is harmful when chronic but helpful when it spurs positive action. And the key to overcoming debilitating fear is to have a clear view of reality and an abiding belief in the goodness of a powerful God who loves steadfastly. It means facing the dark demons of the soul the disappointments and failures that crowd our lives and cow our consciences. It means heeding the warnings that good fear sounds without losing hope that surviving, even thriving, is possible. It means accepting the comfort and protection of God in the midst of discomforting situations. Courage comes even then, Perhaps especially then. The prophet Jeremiah faced hardships aplenty, and what was God's message to him? Do not be afraid, for I am with you to deliver you. Jeremiah went on to serve with distinction and is remembered through all the generations as a truth teller. Fear can be conquered. Joshua heard Moses charge the people of Israel with the command to fear the Lord your God, and later he accepted the challenge of leading these people into battle against overwhelming odds. And what was God's command to him? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua accepted the charge and led God's people into the promised land. If fear is a disease, then courage is its antidote. Courage, it's been said, is not the absence of fear. Rather, it's the judgment that something else is more important than fear. Courage is the ability to look squarely at reality and respond ethically. Good vision and good ethics depend on our willingness to give God full due, to demonstrate this respect by loving God and our fellow human beings with all our hearts. Acts chapter 5 has a number of interesting stories in it, and I commend it to you. But the one I want to mention comes when, once again, Peter and the apostles are hauled before the religious authorities for defying the assembly's strict orders not to teach in Jesus' name. The Christians, however, held firm to their conviction that obedience to God was of a higher order than the court that was prosecuting them now, and they refused to to be cowed, and this refusal did not go well in the assembly. A great furor erupted. The members were furious at Peter and John and the apostles, and they were calling even for them to be killed. They wanted them put to death. And then boldness appeared in another form. A highly respected member of the Sanhedrin faced down the fury with a bold proposal of his own, Gamaliel a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, a respected elder, stood to speak. And he recounted the history of failed movements that had happened during the time he'd been around. And he concluded, in essence, uh, by saying that things that are false will fade, and things that are true will endure no matter what attempts to stop them. Leave these men alone, he advocated. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. That was the wisdom he shared, and it took courage to stand in that assembly and offer that counsel. It was a beautiful expression of a well-grounded spirit. It was bold in the right way. I am concerned about Christians who go off half-cocked in their efforts to defend God. God needs our submission to truth, not outbursts about the minutiae of a belief system or ideas about proper behavior. Don't tilt at windmills. Don't take a stand simply for the sake of taking a stand. Stand always for truth. Be people of integrity. Don't be belligerent. Be bold, yes, but beautiful. Bold and beautiful. Let's pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen.